as God the Holy Spirit resurrected the crucified Christ, so too does Christianity resurrect the dead language of Koine Greek, the original language of the New Testament. It is difficult to capture the essence of another language, and there is always something lost in translation. The reading today has rich nuance in the original Greek, which I hope will deepen your understanding of this text. The phrase, end of all things, was translated from the Greek telos, and that word has a deeper nuance and is less apocalyptic in nature than the English translation may suggest. Telos can be translated as purpose or goal, and I suggest we read this passage in that light. God's goal for humanity is drawing near. Thus, we must be purposeful and alert in our actions, for everything we do is meant to further God's goal in this world. The word stewards was translated from oikonomos, a word that suggests community in the original Greek. Our stewardship of God's grace is communal. It is by engaging with one another that we truly glorify God. But most importantly of all for understanding this passage is the word for gift, charisma. This is no ordinary gift like the ones we may have received a month ago for Christmas. This is no gift that you can lose or be broken or used up. No, a charisma is a gift of the Holy Spirit, a gift that God continually and actively showers upon you. It is a gift that the Spirit pours into you. It is how God touches you individually as a person. Overall, this passage suggests God's purpose drawing near in the world through our words and our service, glorifying God through our humanity and our dedication to our Lord, Jesus the Christ. The goal of all things is near. Therefore, be serious and discipline yourself for the sake of your prayers. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. Whoever speaks must do so as one speaking the very words of God. Whoever serves must do so with the strength that God supplies, so that God may be glorified in all things through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will proclaim your praise. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. The night before Christmas was the hardest night to fall asleep as a kid. I would rush to bed after Christmas Eve services in anticipation of the next day. I would toss and turn all night, dreaming of presents under the tree that for weeks I had longed to tear into. And so, accordingly, I'd usually wake my house up at 5 a.m. or earlier as an annoying little herald of Christmas morning. 
My parents, for their sanity, eventually enforced a rule that I was not to wake up anybody before daybreak. So one Christmas morning, I woke ready for the thrill of unwrapping presents. Judging from the darkness outside, I knew I couldn't wake up my parents quite yet. So cocooning myself in my blanket, I watched the dawn break, the pale yellow light of the sun glinting off the snowfall that encased the landscape. And I sang Christmas hymn after hymn, thanking God for the day I was watching unfolding. When the clock finally hit seven, I said a prayer so briefly to the Christ child. Then I rushed out the room to hop on my parents' bed, the stillness broken, but not forgotten. When I've told people I'm studying to be a pastor, I've gotten reactions from every end of the spectrum. I've had friends air their rightful grievances against a church that has harmed them. I've had acquaintances share moving stories of their conversion to Christianity. But by and large, the response I receive most often is the question, why? Why do you want to be a pastor? The simplest answer is that I've wanted to be a pastor since I was a kid. And even in my moments of doubt or confusion, that idea lurked in the recesses of my mind. As a kid, I discerned a gift for preaching early on. I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but when I was younger, I would frequently zone out of sermons to compose sermons of my own, which I would like to add doesn't happen here. <laughs> um, I am, and of course, I'm sure that as a seven-year-old, my sermons were not the finest quality, but I really did love parsing through the readings to try and figure out what God wanted to say to us each Sunday. And so to borrow from the reading today, I longed to preach from the pulpit as one speaking the very words of God. So it's wonderful to have that dream realized here. There's an unfortunate tendency in our religion to separate clergy and laity, the ones wearing the stoles and the ones sitting in the pews. This tendency is reflected in our language about a pastor's discernment to their profession. People are called to be pastors, Pastors discern their gifts for ministry and preaching and pastoral care, but we don't really hear that kind of language if we talk about a bank teller's job or a lawyer's job or so on. Now, of course, this isn't to say that I don't think pastors are given these gifts by God, but rather, I don't think it's only pastors who receive God's gifts for their profession and lives. The early Christian community had a similar view to mine. The earliest communities were struck by the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit and the gifts that the Spirit imparted to each and every Christian. People were prophesizing, healing, speaking in tongues, preaching, serving, giving all they had to the church. Christians were seeing the activity of God firsthand through the works of their fellow believers. The scripture passage today reminds us that each and every one of us has a gift by God to use in this world. Look around you at the beautiful artwork adorning our sanctuary, or take a trip downstairs near my office to see the myriad of art from members of our own congregation. These are gifts that glorify God. Our musicians praise God with every note. Our Stephen ministers have the gift of ministry to those in times of crisis or grief. 
Members give moving testimonies of their faith journey. Our kitchen chicks offer the gift of hospitality each church dinner. These are all gifts of the Spirit poured into this church, and I would go far over my allotted time if I mentioned each gift God has given First Congregational. The list is as long as the cloud of witnesses above us. Martin Luther, my own theological forefather, saw that the work and professions of each and every Christian glorify and serve God in their own way. He wrote that God's people please God even in the least and most trifling matters. For God will be working all things through you and perform the most servile duties through you and all the greatest and least duties alike are pleasing to the Lord. So the question becomes this, what is your gift, great or small, that God has given you? What do you have to offer that will further God's purpose and goal in this world. God has given you a gift, and you should want to tear into it and unwrap it with the same zeal as I wanted to tear into my presence as a kid. Discernment of gifts is a tricky business, and there's always a reason to not unwrap and see the gift that God has given you. We may worry about meeting our budget if we give too abundantly to the church, or our schedule if we commit to yet another church activity, or our speaking abilities if we're asked to read at worship. Maybe even now you're thinking along similar lines. I might have a gift to offer, but I'm retired, but I'm busy, but I'm fill in the blank. But there are no buts in God's gifts. God's gifts are radically universal, and this is radical because it's universal. Each of us has the opportunity to glorify God in our actions, which means putting God first in our day, in our profession, in our finances, in our everyday interactions. It means approaching each moment with the question, how can I glorify the Lord right now? So, once along this path, if you've figured out your gift, this charisma that the Spirit has sent to you, what do you do with it? The words in 1 Peter give us a hint. We ought to serve one another with the gifts of the Spirit. We cannot hoard our gifts for ourselves. The very nature of God the Spirit is to give abundantly. And so, too, the gifts of the Spirit must be given to the community. After all, what would, my use, what would my gift of preaching be any of any use if I preached into an empty room? Or our sanctuary singers if they preached to an empty congregation? Or how could the artwork by our congregation members glorify God if they remained cooped up and out of sight? A charisma not shared is no true gift of the Spirit at all. We squander God's gifts if we don't pour them out with the same love that the Spirit pours into us. Or, to use the phrase popularized by Seinfeld, gifts of the Spirit should be regifted. I'll close with one final memory from my childhood, one little step on my journey of discernment. It was middle school, and in our home ec class, the project for the day happened to be bread baking. 
When the loaves were removed from the oven and piping hot, a group of my peers and I trekked through the snow to church for Maundy Thursday. As we gathered round the chapel, our pastor noticed that we had freshly baked bread and asked if anyone would be willing to donate theirs for communion that night, and I readily volunteered. When the time came for communion, my bread was broken by the pastor. I'll never forget that moment. I was filled with such joy. This loaf of bread, a gift prepared by my hands, was given for Jesus and broken for my community. My bread nourished those around me whom I loved so deeply. And so can your gifts. May each and every one of you continue to nourish this community with your gifts. For by doing so, we praise and glorify the one who gave the greatest gift, his life, for us. Amen. Now, 